he doubled his net income, which is not bad, but he four times the amount of headaches that he had to do to get there. And when he finally did sell his business, he was very happy with it because, you know, he did double the value of his business. But he said that five, six year period was very difficult because of the size of the headaches of growing the size of that business. And it wasn't always about uh, necessarily getting that top line up, but he should have been more focused on just taking it from five to 10 with a better net income and maybe doubling it with only half the revenues. Welcome to the Money Alchemist podcast. My name is Brent Gargano from Infinite Wealth Planning, and I am here with Anthony Lewis. Anthony is a senior manager at a CPA firm here in Cincinnati, Kirsch CPA. Uh, They are a full service CPA firm that uh, works to consult business owners to improve their their taxes. Uh, Certainly, I'd love to give him a chance to explain a bit about what he does. So welcome, Anthony. Uh, why don't you give the listeners a, a, a brief introduction on who you are and a little bit about what you guys do? Yeah, thanks for having me, Brent. Um, so I've been doing accounting for about 21 years. I've done everything from setting up accounting information systems to audits to tax returns, a lot of business consulting and M&A acquisitions, mergers, sales of businesses. It's been pretty much some of everything. Full service CPAs uh, typically try to work with their clients all year round. Um, a lot of the time, CPAs will only work with them maybe once a year when they get their taxes done or financial statements. But the difference is, is the constant communication, meetings, uh, kind of quarterbacking a lot of their professional services and meeting with them strategically to make sure that their goals are being accomplished, tracked, and really just kind of help them push them to the next level and make sure that we're not going to run into any issues with the transactions that they're doing and we're getting the most tax advantage plays out there before we get to the end of the year. And then they're like, Hey, by the way, we did this. And we're like, Oh, if you'd have done it this way, you'd have saved so much money. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's really important to note because, Mm -hmm. you know, as an advisor, there's so many times where uh, you might provide tax advice or provide tax education rather to clients through the year, you know, Hey, this is something you could do to save yourself money in taxes or what have you. But if you don't have a system for communicating and following through on that, and you know, they're just showing up at their CPA once a year, they haven't had communication all year long. There's, there's almost so much catching up to do that. It's, it's nearly inevitable that something slips through the cracks. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes um, it's just a matter of understanding what's going on in the business and with the person um, and not having any surprises. So when we typically get a client, the biggest thing that they want is no surprises. They want to be able to manage their cash flows. They want to know when the taxes, you know, come due in April. They know about what that amount is in like October, November timeframe so that they have a couple of months in the end of the year to try to maximize deductions or make strategic moves and try to shelter as much income as, you know, possible under the IRS code and still have time to actually manage the business before it's like April. And then they're like, oh, what do you mean? I owe $100,000 in tax. And they didn't plan the cash flows out for that. So when we do meet with our clients, we try to make sure that they know all along the way Every quarter when we meet with them, they know what the financials are. They know what the potential tax impacts are, and they know what to expect for the future tax payments for the following year. 
you'd you'd think that it might be common sense that you're going to review taxes for the current year in the current year as opposed to in the future year when you can only do so much about it. Yeah, and that's the problem that we find in the industry is that um, a lot of accountants are looking through the rearview mirror, we call it. So they're just reporters of the history. So I give you your tax return in April. And then um, by that point, what happens is you've already been four months through the year. So what happens is they are like, oh, that's great. That was four months ago, but I should have really known what this value is in December of the prior year. So what we try to do is we try to be more forward looking and proactive with our tax planning and our strategies and our meetings with our clients so that they're not being surprised. And we're looking through the windshield instead of the rear view mirror on their financial situation and pictures. Yeah. With, with the irony being that we sit here recording this on October 6th, <laughs> the personal tax extension for last year is due in, I don't know, about a week. And, uh, you know, you've kindly taken the time out to sit with us here. Uh, you know, I think sometimes it's funny to hear about the fire drill that's going on the last week, you know, that we have for the prior year, 10 months later. But I, I digress. Anyway, so for some context for listener here. So we, we've, you know, we wanted to take some time and talk to Anthony and get his thoughts around, you know, really a number of different um, challenges or attributes, uh, th things that business owners have to deal with that touches the world of a CPA. So we wanted to have Anthony in to really start to dive through some of these topics. Um, everything from how to manage costs, be that, you know, benefits, employees, hard input costs, how to look at revenues, how to, you know, manage strategic tax planning, how to plan around succession for a business eventually. So we have a lot of good topics to talk about. But for today, we really wanted to look a little closer at, you know, the income side of the income statement, really look at how do companies in 2023 or any time really look at their revenues and analyze and assess the most effective uh, way to strategize or tell us a little bit more about where the CPA firm even comes into play on that. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that we like to do the most with our clients is really come up with budgets and projections and then set goals and help them set metrics to them. So if you set a goal and you don't have metrics or you don't have some way to track the progress, you don't tend to have a way to see if you're actually making improvements. So if I meet with a client and they say, hey, I want to make 20% more revenue next year, I say, that's fantastic goal. How are we going to get there? A lot of the times business owners don't understand that making 20% more does not necessarily mean 20% more profit if we're not you know, getting the right customers the right gross profit margins, and we help them sort of identify the areas of um, the overall strategic portion of, okay, what customers am I going after? What gross profit margins? What business lines are going to get me the most bottom line income? And not just thinking in the terms of, oh, I just need 20% more revenue. I want to say, okay, out of that 20% more revenue, how much more do we want to drop to the bottom line? And let's talk more full picture. What's your advertising strategy and pulling a lot of different components into that rather than just some hot lofty increase. 
So it's interesting. So as you say that, you know, first thought that comes to mind is what what percentage would you say when when a business owner comes to you and says, okay, I want to, you know, review my financials, make sure everything looks good. And, 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 and you start looking through the basics of the financials. Do you feel that normally the business has a good handle on their profit margins per client? I mean, how, how, um, detailed are these numbers generally when they first get to you and what's that process like in you know kind of reconciling what the what the real numbers are or should be every business is different but i tend to find that smaller business owner operations and even of the mid-sized businesses they don't really you know look at their profit and losses by customer or in the detail maybe they don't have enough financial information that's timely to do a really good analysis. So I would say it varies between business to business, but most of them are just looking at the gross revenue and then do I have money in the bank to run my operations? A lot of them don't really dissect the information down to the level of, okay, how much am I making off this business line? They have a good general idea of what their profit margins are, but they probably don't take it to the next level of, okay, which of my customers am I making the most money on? And that's one of the strategic functions that we try to help them with, which is basically identifying different classifications of your your customers. So, for instance, you know, we have these classes that we like to call A clients. These are the cream of the crop. These are the ones that are good to deal with. They pay their bills timely. Um, they work with you in situations. They're profitable and they're, you know, knowledgeable about what the the product is and how to utilize it and they're just a great partner. And then they also potentially can tell others to use your product and become advocates for your business. That is a great example of a client. Now, on the other hand, if you have D clients, they're always arguing, you know, they're always fighting you on every dollar. They don't work with you. They're slow payers. They demand things very quickly, turnaround time, and they put a huge strain on businesses. And that might be a more of a category D client. Like those are the ones where you typically are asking our clients if they are going to get rid of these or they're going to try to move them up to like a B or a C client. And the B and C clients are basically one step below A and one step above D that they might not have all the issues that a D client has. But those are the four kind of buckets that I refer to when I'm looking at my client listings and saying, okay, how do I get my D clients out of my company and get more A and B clients? And then if I have C clients that will work with me, how do I get them to be a B or A client? And then how do you identify those markers or how does a business go about determining what those classes are and what revenue levels that they should be focused on to get those kind of customers? So do you find that, so when if you sit down with a business owner and you say, tell me a little bit about your client base and, you know, they, they, they go through, you know, maybe this exercise where they give you an initial segmentation of their A, B, C, D clients from their perspective. Do you find that by the time you really talk about what does it mean to be an A client, B, C, or D, that that actually lines up with how the business owner ranked it? Uh, no, actually, a lot of the times it is way off. So for instance, um, when we start categorizing this with clients and every industry is different and every business owner values different things more heavily, right? Like if you have a high production type business and you do a lot of volume with one customer, typically the business owner is like, this is an A client because I do a lot of volume 
with this customer. But then when I go digest the gross profit margin, the quick turnaround times, how much stress they put on the business, they're like, oh, well, they're actually a C client on their way to D because they're stressing my team out. They stress me out. They don't pay timely, but they do a lot of business with us and they're a big company and we kind of need that so that we can cover our overhead. But when I look at the overall picture, you're right. Based on these categories, I'm starting to see signs that they're putting more damage onto my business and my process than they should. And if there's ways to help get that better and they'll work with them, then they can try to move them towards that B category by my setting up some simple goals. Yeah. So, so just uh, translating this to, you know, wealth management and thinking about what it means to be wealthy. It's funny, right? It doesn't, a lot of times if you ask a client, what do you think it means to be wealthy? Their answer really revolves around how much money there is in the bank, you know? And, and so it can be, it's a good reminder that sometimes being focused on on revenue or on money or on the dollar value can be maybe a little short-sighted. And maybe there's some other less tangible factors that should be bigger drivers of the decision-making. So that's that's something that we see a lot in in our world. So I guess, you know, at what point, you know, small business, you're just getting started, you know, you're growing the client base. I mean, how does this process work for somebody that's maybe, you know, in startup mode and trying to acquire, uh, you know, an initial base of clients versus somebody that has a more established business? I guess in my mind, you know, when I, when I initially think about it, it can be easy when you're first starting a business to just acquire anybody and everybody, you know, cause you need revenue. But how do you think about that A, B, C, and D tier, you know, proactively as you're establishing the business. Yeah. And you know, when you're starving, uh, you'll pick up anything on the street and basically put it in your mouth. And that's just kind of how it goes with picking up customers in the early phases. And I'm, you know, subject to that too, to some degree where if you're trying to grow a business, you're kind of willing to take on almost anybody to get that revenue growth. However, um, I think you're setting yourself up for more damage even early on. If you're taking on too much risk and not quite the right uh, client source because uh, in the long run, it'll be a lot more stress on you. It'll be a lot more stress on your team. And even when you're growing, maybe not being as picky as you are when you're more established and you're able to weed out some of that, but at least having some parameters of what you are and are not willing to accept because what it does is it sets a tone and a culture for the team and everybody else in the organization that you're going to hold your customers accountable to certain standards. And it really does kind of lean itself to you dealing with and working with better classes of clients throughout the whole process. And then you don't have to go through this difficult process midway through when you're growing to weed out the bad ones, reestablish relationships, and then go find your best customer source and revenue uh, targets. And some of that you can actually coach to your customers that you're dealing with. And sometimes you can't. And that is an identifier of whether or not you can move them up a category or you just need to get away from it and do maybe a little bit less revenue. And, you know, kind of just I'm thinking through the life cycle of a business owner, you know, from starting the business, hopefully you have enough of your own money and what have you to stand up and say, look, I can afford not to take this client because, I, you know, they're going to be a distraction long term or what have you. But, you know, may, maybe some people have that have that, you know, uh, flexibility. Others don't. What do you say to the business owner that's maybe 
uh, now they've they've they're at you know their business is operating capacity. They've got this group of clients that they've been able to brought bring on. They now segment their clients, and then maybe they're recognizing there's some clients that don't fit the model anymore. I mean, how do you what what's the thought process like when you're starting to think about how to? Is that something that 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 bleeds into your world? Oh, absolutely. As our business grows and our customers' business grows. Um, <clears throat> they're getting more complicated. There's more technology. There's more efficiencies. Um, they might grow in sophistication. So if I am a professional service team and I start out with customers of revenues of like, let's just say a million dollars, and all of a sudden as we grow and our customers grow, the complexities grow. And we have to be adaptable to that sort of a circumstance and then really evaluate ourselves and say, hey, can we service these customers anymore? Or should we really evaluate ourselves and say, hey, this is no longer our niche. And if we find ourselves trying to do something that's out of our wheelhouse and spending all these costs, trying to just keep the customers we have when they're really not a good fit anymore, we might find that the gross profit margin or the realization or the net profit at the end of the day is starting to shrink on those business lines that are becoming more complex that we're not able and willing to handle. So we should really evaluate our own technologies and our sophistication and make sure that we're keeping up with the times and that if we're growing and our customers are growing, we're all continuing to row the same direction or go, Hey, you're getting too big for us. We need to kind of find a bigger company to partner with to maybe transition that client to a bigger one. Or if we have smaller ones that they're too unsophisticated now, or they're not willing to you know, grow with us, then maybe we might have to let them go and find a smaller provider that will service their needs and keep the middle ones and keep working on our own technology to determine, do we want to invest in becoming more sophisticated or do we want to just set up a niche right here in the middle and just focus on that and grow in that gross profit? Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And so you mentioned what one thing that was going through my head is like, okay, so, and, and by the way, the most interesting one that you said there is getting rid of a client that has gotten too big for you. How often do you actually see that a business owner willing to do that? It actually happens quite regularly. Um, sometimes we don't want to admit that we can't service somebody anymore. It's very difficult. Um, but I got a, for instance, I have a client that just wanted to do a deal and they're going to sell off a segment of their business and they're going to invite this um, foreign investor in and they're going to set up three companies overseas. We can do that. But the level of complexity now is said, hey, I don't know the compliance rules in China. So I need to go get outsourced CPA help to bridge the gap in that area to make sure that the full service of the client is being handled because I'm not an expert in Chinese compliance and how to file returns over there to make sure that they're in compliance there. I know how to handle the foreign subsidiary here in the United States, but I'm not going to go start specializing in Chinese compliance because I just don't have a demand for that. Sure. So I, I, I think. If I'm summarizing all of this, and maybe you can tell me if this is the right way to to be hearing this, but maybe it's easy to focus on revenue alone because, of course, big numbers look nice. But if we forget about the story behind how that revenue got there, what the actual profitability of that revenue is, you know, between the distraction that it can create the drag that it can create on the direction of the business, you, you could actually be shooting yourself in the, in the foot uh, tripping. I think the phrase, if I'm not mistaken, is tripping over dollars to save pennies. Is that, is that accurate? 
Absolutely. Um, gross profit analysis is key in any business. Top line revenue is fantastic for being showy, but it's not always the best measure of success. To me, if um, I'll, I'll give an example. I had a client that was a $2 million audit. It was a huge job, but we had to go overseas. We had to send a big team. It was a huge drain in our office uh, between two of the months that were busiest. So we're giving away our best staff to make sure that they can handle this big job. It's our busiest time of the year. It's a lot of overtime. They're overseas. They're away from their family. And the top line revenue was great. It was $2 million. However, the gross profit that we made, the bottom line that hit the firm was not in the same percentage as the other smaller work. So what we found was if we retooled our time with those employees and brought them back, number one, they were happier because they were with their families. Number two, they were not working as many hours. And number three, when we retooled that time, the gross profit margin on the smaller jobs that we were working on had a more significant drop to the bottom line with only $1 million of business. So I had a $2 million net sale and a $1 million net sale, but the bottom line increase was double when I shrunk my sales because we had lower realization on the $2 million job than we did on the smaller $1 million jobs. Our employees were happier. The culture was better. And a lot of times business owners, not all of them, obviously, but they're more focused on the top line saying, hey, I just want to grow sales. But if you're not making the same gross profit margin or you're seeing gross profit margin slippage, I would say I would rather be interested in what is hitting my net income line and how much at the end of the day does the company increase its equity based on the transaction and not just focus on top line. Yeah, I think that's so important because a lot of the business owners that that we work with, they it's really easy to look at what kind of money they're making year to year. You know, they're, they're kind of almost thinking in, in their paycheck. But I, I think it's easy to forget that you're also growing an asset that's a business. And so your your duty as a business owner is almost twofold, right? You've got the cash flow that your business creates to support your family and your expenses on an ongoing basis. But then you've also got this value of this asset. I mean, let's face it, you know, humans have expiration dates, but businesses don't necessarily. And so if, if you are a business owner and it can be hard when you're young and early in the stage of business or even, you know, mid stage, but eventually there needs to be continuity and your profitability, I would imagine, maybe you can get shed some light on this, but I imagine your sl profit slippage, all of those things are, are elements of whatever valuation that you might receive. Is that, is that right? I mean, it, you know, how does the conversation we're having impact what you might actually be able to sell your, your business for, as opposed to just the income that you bring in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so every industry slightly varies in this, but a lot of the businesses, when you go to sell them, have some sort of a multiple, typically it's some sort of an EBITDA calculation or a multiple of like gross profit or something that you can value and compare companies with each other. However, my thought is on this, and it, it's circumstantial depending on certain factors, but I think that if you can get a gross profit margin dialed in by creating a process and then being able to scale that process 
but really nailing the fact that, hey, if I get new clients, I'm going to know that because of the processes I've set up and because of the efficiencies I have, I'm going to make 50% gross profit margin. And then I grow my revenues. That is so much more powerful than the reverse. So if I just grow my revenues, I'm spending a ton of money doing it and I'm only making 30% and then I got to try to take this bigger business and then try to get the gross profit up to 50% is far harder than just getting the process down, really dialing in on the efficiencies and getting that 50% gross profit margin so that it is scalable and having the processes in place to scale than it is to try to scale once you've grown because you're just so focused on top line. And I think that they're just so focused sometimes on the top line that they don't really have the process in place to make it scalable so that when they go to grow, they have growing problems that end up costing them a lot of money because they didn't have the process in place to handle the growth. Yeah. I, like I said, I mean, I think it's so important to think about the potential saleability of your business over time. And there's a multiple, you know, that applies to that. So basically to just to simplify it a little bit, you look at the, the, how much money the business makes and depending on the industry, my understanding is you, you would apply a multiplier. And if it's an industry that has higher amounts of growth, that multiplier might be higher than an industry with lower amounts of growth. But let's say that multiplier is 5x for a company with, I'm just going to make this up, but let's say the multiplier is 5x for a company with you know, 10% profit margins and 8x for a company with 20% profit margins. You know, if you're, if you, if you do a million dollars of profit, that's the difference of a $5 million valuation or an $8 million valuation, right? I mean, am I thinking about that correctly? Yeah. And to me, um, people try to focus on their revenue growth because they think that they're going to get a higher multiplier. But at the end of the day, it really comes down to cash flows most times when you're selling a business. So if I have a high EBITDA number that's generating enough money to substantiate the deal, there's still growth in the company. You're going to be able to sell and market that business far easier than a company that's not generating as much net profit, even though they have high sales figures. When I'm looking at these, there are multiple different sites and sources for companies of your industry groups and their databases. So the first thing I would do is I would probably go and find an accountant or a specialist to even do a quick valuation on what the typical valuation of a business in my industry is and then compare myself to what my other peers are doing and saying, Hey, is my gross profit margin in line with other industries? Is my net income percentage in line? And then, okay, how do they value that business? If it's EBITDA and I say, okay, now I have a target to grow my EBITDA to a certain number so that when I sell it, I roughly know what that number is going to be. And as I stage myself to prepare to sell the business or to transition the business or succession plan this, I know what my targets are as far as growth goes based on some industry data and some advice to look at other groups in my industry to say, okay, this is what's standard and this is what I'm doing. So either I need to help myself get there or understand, hey, I'm doing better than the industry and I'm ready to now grow and get this thing ready to sell. And I, and I imagine that somebody that's doing this regularly on an ongoing basis, uh, 
maybe has a little less stress in their life when it does come time to do a transaction just the clarity that's there. Is that, is that an accurate statement as well? Absolutely. But let's just, let's, let's face reality here, Brent. I am going to totally value my business with no basis in reality. My business <laughs> is worth $10 million. I don't care what anybody else says. It's my baby. I've been working on this for 20 years. And you know, somebody might come to me and say, Hey, on paper, based on the valuation, this is only a $5 million business. And you're like, no, it's worth 10. And I'm not saying there's circumstances that it's not worth 10 because sometimes there might be an intrinsic value or you might have a, a patent or something that's very specialized that nobody else has access to. And it really is worth 10 million. But a lot of the times you can pin this thing down to a cash flow where if I'm going to sell my business for $10 million and it's operating and generate a million dollars of income per year that basically is cash flowed. Can the loan to buy this company at $10 million with interest cash flow from the operations of my current business? Because typically if a deal is being looked at by an outside party to acquire something, they don't want to have to pay $150,000, $200,000 a year to let it float on its own. They want to be able to buy it, cash flow it, make sure the deal makes sense, and then probably grow it to a higher level and then make sure that the projection will cash flow. Um, some businesses don't have to worry about that, especially software as a service companies where they might not even have revenue and their business valuation is a key component to somebody else's business and they'll acquire them without even making money for 10 X of their subscription base or their revenues, even though they're not making money yet. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. We've, we've talked about revenues now, Interestingly enough, from what I've learned is, you know, when you're talking about revenues, it sounds like the bottom line is revenues are important. But if you have revenues without profits, they're meaningless. Is that is that a fair way to sum this up? Absolutely. Um, I had a customer one time who's positioning himself to sell his business. And this is a fantastic problem for him to have. He was about a six million dollar business. And we sat down for a planning meeting and he goes, Anthony, I want to sell my business. and I want to grow up to 20 million dollars in the next six years. And I said, fantastic. How much money do you have to put into advertising? And they said, well, you know, it's funny you should mention that because I have a $2 million budget to grow my revenues. And I said, okay, let's, let's sit down and talk about this. So we did. And he said he is going to employ marketing on multiple fronts. He did a great job. They grew the top line of their business from $5 million to $10 million in one one year and six months. They grew the revenues by five million. How much did they spend? They spent four and a half million to get that five million dollars of revenue. Now it wasn't a total loss, but they basically broke even on their investment between all the advertising and all the additional hiring and everything else. Um, and it was a wash. So he literally was making the same net income, but he doubled his problems. <laughs> right. Does that make sense? Like he's yeah. now got more employees, more customers, more calls, more trucks. Right. He's doing more deliveries. And then the next year he said, OK, well, now I've got top line revenue and I got more calls. and I'm going to cut back my advertising budget and I'm going to grow another five million dollars, which he did. He cut back his advertising budget and then he grew another five million. So he got to 15 million. So now he's getting close to that 20. But he's like, Anthony, I'm only making five hundred thousand dollars more now than I did when I was only a $5 million business and I've grown this thing to 15 million. What's going on? And I said, well, you know, you've got a lot more employees. You got a lot more inefficiencies. You got a lot more, you know, locations. Now you had old aging buildings. You had to put more money into them. And he's like, okay, okay, that's great. I think that 
you know, in a couple of years from now, we're going to solve some of these problems. So he finally got to $20 million. And what he got to at the end of the day was he doubled his net income, which is not bad, but he four times the amount of headaches that he had to do to get there. And when he finally did sell his business, he was very happy with it because, you know, he did double the value of his business. But he said that five, six year period was very difficult because of the size of the headaches of growing the size of that business. And it wasn't always about uh, necessarily getting that top line up, but he should have been more focused on just taking it from five to 10 with a better net income and maybe doubling it with only half the revenues. Yeah. Basically work adjusted profits. I mean, you know, there is a cost for every, every action or every, every, um, you know, revenue source that you have. And, um, we all love our clients. I mean, it's not to downplay anything like that, but you know, there is work that comes along with it and, and you do have, um, deliverables for the other clients. And you have to be mindful that a big part of your job is making sure that everybody is getting the quality work that you, you know, stand behind as a company and that you can make that durable, um, years into the future. Well, Andy, this has been great. I I guess before we, uh, before we finish up here, did you have any last, uh, last thoughts? Well, I think the last thought that I do have is kind of something that you mentioned earlier, which wouldn't, You said that, hey, wealth, when you're looking at wealth, it's not the only factor of how many assets can I accumulate? Um, There's factors to running a business and other things that we have to consider to make sure like work-life balance, um, culture, uh, your health. These are all intangibles that if we're just like, hey, I'm so focused on growing this that I'm willing to work instead of 40 hours a week, 80 hours a week to get this growth, but my health is slipping. I'm having problems with my family because I'm never home. You know, my employees aren't happy. These are all things that are intangible, but really do impact your productivity and your ability to function and run your business. And to balance things out to say, okay, well, I've accumulated all this wealth, but now I'd have no family and I have no health um, to make sure that I am talking to my clients to say, Hey, this is great, but we got to balance things. You don't want to burn yourself out. And we want to make sure that we're considering all aspects of life. And it's not just all about um, the numbers at the end of the day or the assets you accumulate. It's the relationships. It's the quality of life that we have and the values that we stand for in our business and what we're putting out there. So I, I, I think that's a great way to kind of conclude because relating that back to, to my business, what we've found as we work with you know individual clients and we start to help them unpack and and get their heads around their their finances what's interesting is when you start out in that process 9 times out of 10 the goal is really like a logical one you know it's 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 monetary focus it's really about how do i you know uh make more money in through my investments how do i save more money to taxes how do i avoid you know uh making a mistake around insurance what whatever right it's logical stuff and what you find is that as you work with these people and you go through the planning process and they start to get their head around what do they actually have what are they trying to use it for who are the important i won't say people but parties because i think that can be a, a broader term sometimes it's businesses uh gosh i've got clients that even put pets in their estate plans and things like that right so you um what you what you find is that 
there's maybe this focus on the money side that's driven by a fear or an anxiety that comes from really not having confidence or an understanding of the bigger financial picture. And once you've established that foundation, you understand where your finances are, where they're going and stuff. It allows your brain to kind of get unstuck from that money piece and start to think about all the things that if you if you had a conversation with somebody, you came up to them and you said, you know, your health is more important than your money. I think everybody would generally look at you and go, yeah, you know, that's right. But like doing that is a whole nother thing. And I, I think that the process, from my perspective, of course, is a biased one, of wealth management really is there to help people kind of get over that hump and start to ask more important questions beyond the, the money side of it. So anyway, I think that's a great way to get it, get this finished up. This has been a lot of fun. I'm really glad that we took some time to talk about revenues. Hopefully some of the folks listening uh, have some good takeaways and and some great uh things to think about as they're uh, either starting, growing, or, or, or thinking about, you know, potentially getting their businesses ready for, for sale. Um, so Anthony, really appreciate you taking this time, especially, gosh, we had tax time, tax time is next week. So I, <laughs> if, if actions speak louder than words, you guys must do a good job of uh, being proactive around your work so that you don't have to be uh, too busy come tax time, huh? Absolutely. I mean, being strategic, I'm actually not as busy um, right now as I, some other firms may be because we've done good planning and our customers are already taken care of. And we're actually working on planning for 2024 taxes right now. I'm doing more tax planning right now and strategic thinking than I'm actually filing tax returns that have been extended because we've been ahead of the game. Well, from the advisor's perspective, I think that's so important. It's great to have relationships with CPAs that can be proactive and uh, really, really thank you for doing that. So with that all said, guys, thank you for listening to the Money Alchemist podcast. We'll talk to you next time. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Advisory services offered through National Wealth Management Group, LLC, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from LPL Financial, LLC. The opinions voiced in this material are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. This information is not intended as authoritative guidance or tax or legal advice. You should consult with your attorney or tax advisor for guidance for your specific situation. Anthony Lewis is not affiliated with LPL Financial. Brent Gargano is not affiliated with LPL Financial. The content shared in this podcast by Kirsch CPA Group is based on their own experiences, research, and opinions, and it may not be suitable as professional or expert advice. We highly recommend consulting with qualified experts or professionals when making important decisions relating to the topics we discuss. Your individual circumstances and needs may vary, and what works for one person may not necessarily work for another.